KYW News Radio Original Podcasts. Hey, everybody, this is Flashpoint host Cherry Gregg. Thanks so much for downloading the podcast. Would you do me a favor when you're done listening? Would you subscribe, rate, and review the podcast? We need your reviews to take us to the top. Thanks. Now let's get to it. This week on Flashpoint, the Food and Drug Administration has given emergency use authorization to Pfizer's COVID-19 vaccine and rollout is happening as we speak. But a recent survey shows half of all Americans are reluctant to get the shot. Developed so quickly, faster by orders of magnitude than even the fastest vaccine previously. And I think that has made people worried about, is it safe? We'll talk about the stats and what doctors are doing to help increase acceptance, especially in black and brown communities. Not trying to convince, but rather to listen and to educate. You got to listen to the response from these doctors on whether they'll get vaccinated, as well as what you can do to help while making your own decision. We'll be right back. Flashpoint is sponsored by the Gift of Life donor program. Organ donors save lives. Register today at DonorsOne.org. Welcome back to Flashpoint. I'm Cherry Gregg. The FDA has issued emergency authorization for a Pfizer COVID-19 vaccine. Millions of doses are slated to be shipped right away. But a new survey from the Associated Press reports that only half of Americans are willing to take the shot. Why and how do we change that? We have two guests to discuss this Flashpoint. First up is Dr. Allison Buttenheim. She's a researcher at Penn Nursing and is an expert on vaccine acceptance. Dr. Buttenheim, welcome to Flashpoint. Thank you. So delighted to be here. You heard the numbers. Before we go into how Americans feel about this new vaccine, what is your understanding of how it would roll out? So this is going to be quite an operation. So Thursday, the FDA committee that approves the vaccine met and they gave the green light for an emergency use authorization for the Pfizer vaccine, the first vaccine. Um, The FDA has a couple more boxes to check before that EUA is final, but that means there could be vaccine in arms as close as next Tuesday or Wednesday. Um, So what that looks like is the federal government allocates vaccine to states and cities. Philadelphia is one of the jurisdictions in the country that gets its own allocation. And the city onward allocates that right now, mostly to health systems, to large health systems in the city, because the first people to be vaccinated are going to be frontline healthcare workers. And they need to get two doses, three weeks apart for the Pfizer vaccine. There's also some of that early allocation that will go to both residents and staff of long-term care facilities like nursing homes. So there's a whole separate operation to get those folks vaccinated. You know, that'll be the focus for the foreseeable, you know, weeks, maybe months. But then as more doses arrive and we have maybe more vaccines approved, then other, you know, tranches, other priority groups in the population will start being offered the vaccine. And the regular folks, you know, maybe March, April, May, June, we'll start seeing our vaccines. Yeah, so this is a whole, there's a whole structure, uh, a hierarchy for getting the vaccine to the masses. That's right. That's right. And we, the, the priority populations are ones where we want to, you know, prevent disease as much as possible, 
prevent transmission, you know, reduce death and illness. And so it makes sense that we're starting with both our frontline healthcare workers who have a lot of exposure to the disease and who we want to be able to go to work so they can take care of us. Um, and the really sort of vulnerable and you know, elderly, frail, living in congregate settings, folks in nursing homes and long-term care facilities. Um, there's a lot of distrust and a lack of acceptance. More than half of Americans say they don't want to take the shot. And in vulnerable communities, that number is even higher. Explain how do we shift this? And what's the issue here that's causing so much distrust? That's a great question. And of course, it's not a simple answer that there's one thing, right, or one reason. I've studied vaccine acceptance for a long time. And I think about putting people into, you know, different buckets for how motivated they are to get a vaccine and, you know, what are the sort of concerns or issues they might have. And then we think of matching up kind of interventions or strategies to address those depending on what those buckets are. So before COVID vaccine even turned up, you know, we knew that there were lots and lots of people who were pro-vaccine, recognize the benefits, don't have a lot of concerns, eager to do it. And even that group sometimes needs a lot of help with just the logistics and the reminders. This is something you might experience from flu vaccine. Then we have a bunch of people, and this is very true for COVID, who have some concerns, maybe want to wait, uh, like let's see how it goes for other people, or maybe wait for a different vaccine to come down the line. And you know that group, you know, they need communication around what are other people in my community doing, or they need to have you know a little bit of the science explained to them. What does it mean that this vaccine has an emergency use authorization? Is it safe for people like me? And then there are communities where we see and and you know with humility absolutely recognize justified distrust. If you are in a black or brown community, Native American, there are decades, you know, let's over a century of history of medical exploitation, of unconsented experimentation. And, you know, I'm not going to sit as a white behavioral scientist at an Ivy League institution and tell you how you should feel about this vaccine. That is, that is not a strategy that's going to work. It seems like there has been some miscommunication, provide the problem that's presented, and then how do we rewrite things to fix it? So one thing that happened with this vaccine that is so different from prior ones is that it was developed so quickly, faster by orders of magnitude than even the fastest vaccine previously. And I think that has made people worried about, is it safe just because it's just been, it feels like it's been rushed through the process. So one thing the government, whether that's the CDC or Philadelphia Department of Public Health, really needs to communicate is, what do we know about the vaccine that gives us confidence that it is safe? Because nobody wants to be a guinea pig and nobody wants to feel that they're on the receiving end of a vaccine that, you know, for political reasons or for other reasons, you know, was, was rushed ahead. Um, so I think there's some, some transparent communication about why it is that you know, the leading scientists and medical experts in the country have given this a green light and why we think it's okay. But a second really important part of that communication is who was in those trials. So a phase three trial for a vaccine, which is the last trial we do before we say it's okay for the public to get it, has about 30,000 people in it, 30 to 40,000 people. And the, the research groups running those trials work very, very hard to make sure that lots of different populations are represented in those trials. Different groups by race, ethnicity, 
by age, by disease status. Um, and so that when we look at that safety data and that effectiveness data, we can say, yes, for, you know, the, for most of the population, we feel like this is a safe vaccine. But there has been some mis miscommunication and maybe just lack of communication about really what was the makeup of those trials? What was the race ethnic makeup or the, the age distribution? I know lots of people, you can just go on Twitter and read um, really reasonable comments by people, for example, with immune disorders who say, I don't know, I don't know if there were people with my immune disorder in that trial, so I don't know if that's safe. And for those folks, really that, the, that starts with a conversation with your own physician. And so this is going to take a lot of education because I'm sure doctors need to be educated uh, first. This is still a process. It is a process. And, and one other thing that, you know, many people may not know yet is like, where am I in line? You know, am I supposed to just get a message from someone that it's that it's my turn to get the vaccine since we have limited limited supply for now? Um, and I think if there's confusion around that, that will contribute to overall confusion or reluctance about the vaccine. You know, am I priority one or am I priority four? I don't even know. So how important is this communication? Because I mean, I, you know, I've read uh, people's comments even about calling it warp speed, even about <laughs> the way that, you know, how important is language um, in this vaccine acceptance process? Uh, and, and somebody needs to be, it seems like people need to be paying attention to this. It is vitally important. And luckily people are, I can, I can tell you that the, you know, the health promotion people, the health behavior people, the vaccine acceptance people, the behavioral scientists, we're all thinking really hard about this. Um, and we have some lessons from prior vaccines, but this is also a whole new, a whole new ball game. And I agree when you call something operation warp speed, like speed is great. And the, you know, the pandemic is, is raging and we'd like to get some rapid solutions, but like, you don't necessarily want your vaccine to be something that like zoomed onto the scene all of a sudden, right? You want some more, some more deliberation and, and uh, you know, and care put into that. So I think that language was challenging. I also think, and again, a lot of these are conversations I have on Twitter with, with my professional community, when we even say, how do we convince people or how do we persuade people? Um, even that language can, can feel a little wrong for someone who says, I don't, I don't wanna be convinced. This is not like a convincing problem. Um, I need to have you know, confidence and, and trust. And I don't, you know, I don't want you public health community designing messages that are gonna like trick me or fool me into getting vaccinated. So I think we even have to be careful about how we describe our goals, our public health goals in helping people access these vaccines. It seems like you can't, cause you can't force people to do this. They yep. have to, and that's why it's called vaccine acceptance. People have to decide that this is what they, they want to do. Uh, were you surprised um, by the numbers at all? In terms of how few people are, yes. are gung-ho? I'm, I'm not. Um, and one thing that really worries me is that unfortunately the same groups that have been disproportionately burdened with the disease, both the occupational groups and the race ethnic groups and the socio-demographic groups that have had the most disease and the most death, those are also the groups we see least motivated or least excited about the vaccine. And that's too bad because it is a, it is a resource and an asset now to help us get over this pandemic. Um, and if those are the same populations that are like, for historical reasons, I'm not interested in being your guinea pig and please don't persuade me and tell me what to do and, and pretend that you know best. Um, that may leave those groups, again, disproportionately vulnerable to the disease as you know, the rest of the population gets vaccinated. So that's, that's my like keeps me up at night worry 
that we've that we're gonna we're gonna sort of miss the boat in in helping people access what really is gonna be kind of the route back to to normal. So what are the next steps for folks, for physicians, um, for people who could be eligible? What should we be doing now? It's a great, that's a great question. So I think for healthcare providers who will be giving vaccine and will be, you know, talking with their patients and their patient groups about it, you know, making sure you know the facts, having the answers on hand, being transparent when you don't know the answer. But there's also a lot of stuff around just making this as easy as possible for people. So when there's a preventive care decision like this or getting a mammogram or you know doing any other kind of screening um, if there's even a little bit of friction or hassle or uncertainty about how to do it that can also bump participation way down so if you have someone who's on the fence not like totally opposed but sort of like I don't know maybe I don't know it can make a huge difference if we make the process of scheduling an appointment, showing up, you know, it has to be free, like don't put any cost friction in there. We sometimes forget that in addition to all this like communication and persuasion, there's a lot of just like logistics and delivery that can actually help us get good coverage if we make it just super, super easy for people. Eliminating those barriers uh, is, is, is going to be very important. Really important. Uh, is there anything else you, you'd like to add, uh, Dr. Uh, Buttenheim? This is a two-dose vaccine, which means that in addition to getting everybody to show up to get vaccinated the first time, they need to come back in three weeks for a second dose. So I think there's a whole nother set of challenges about reminders and convincing people that that second dose is needed um, and making sure they can access that in the pretty narrow time window where we want them to come back. If there wasn't enough to worry about, there's also this challenge of the second dose. So much to think about. So much to think about. Exciting time to be a vaccine acceptance researcher, I will say. (laughs) Thank you so much. Dr. Vuttenheim says she's willing to get the shot, unlike nearly three quarters of African-Americans who say either no or they want to wait. Dr. Ayla Stanford is founder of the Black Doctors COVID-19 Consortium. She's here to provide perspective on this. Welcome to Flashpoint. Thank you for having me. I appreciate it. Those numbers I just quoted came from the Associated Press, but you've done your own survey and poll uh, of African-Americans here as you rolled out testing, COVID-19 testing and flu shots. And what did you find? We asked about 800 people coming to us to get tested for COVID or get flu shots, their perceptions and attitudes around a coronavirus vaccine. Back in October, where we were still, we weren't at emergency use authorization approval, but we were here. And some interesting things uh, in terms of 72% said they want to wait until other people get the vaccine before they receive it. So they kind of wanted to wait and see. A lot of people thought that it was made too fast. And you can't disagree. This is the fastest a vaccine has been made in our lifetime. And it's the first time with messenger RNA. Now, as a scientist, that's something that makes me pause because it's brand new, right? And then in terms of who wants to get the vaccine as soon as it becomes available? About 42% said they would get it as soon as it becomes available. So it's that other 58% that we really have to talk to. Like, what is it about it? Is it just a feeling? Is it rooted in something? But really talking to what your fears are, what your reservations are, and then not trying to convince nor coerce but rather to listen and to educate. 
and realize that the choice is not uniformly the same for everyone. Everyone has to weigh the risk and benefit to you to decide if the risk is worth the benefit of receiving the coronavirus vaccine. These numbers are different from the wider uh, population of Americans. While less than half are unsure about this vaccine, the number is uh, a little bit higher among African-Americans. Why do you think that distrust uh, or that, that exists there when, we, when your numbers even show that about half of Black Americans have know somebody who had it, know somebody who died from COVID-19, you would think we would want it more versus what the numbers are showing right now. Hmm. Now, that's an interesting point. 43% of people, though, said they would get it. The healthcare system has been untrustworthy to African-Americans. And every time someone says there's a mistrust of healthcare professionals in the Black community, I, you know, I'm very careful. And I say, the healthcare system has been untrustworthy. It's not like, you know, African-Americans were born and said, you know what, I'm not going to trust the healthcare system. It was from life experiences. And even though the younger generation can't quote Dr. Sims performing procedures on Black enslaved women to perfect it before he performed it in white women without their consent, without anesthesia. They can't quote what happened in Tuskegee. They don't know everything about Holmesburg Prison in Philadelphia. They don't know everything about Henrietta Lack and how many cell lines were created, cancers cured, treatments developed off of her cells without compensation or acknowledgement to the family until many, many years later. They don't know that, but culturally they know from their family, we only go to the hospital when we're really sick because somebody might give us something. They're not necessarily gonna treat me well. I don't like how I feel when I go to the doctor. They don't understand my story. So culturally, just because there's a vaccine that was developed in 10 months, you're not going to overturn that with over hundreds of years of cultural experience that's been passed down. And so, again, it's not to convince. It's not to coerce. It's not for a physician to say, you need to take this because your people are dying more from this. It's more for you to listen as to why to educate and then allow that person to make the decision that's best for them. Do you think the country's ready to roll out and, and what will be the black doctor's participation in this rollout of the vaccine? Yeah. Oof. So again, with our mantra, it's education, it's advocacy and barrier-free testing. So with the education, for example, this Sunday, we're having a chat uh, myself with Ali Velchi of MSNBC from 2 to 4 p.m. Eastern time on my Facebook Live. You'll be able to stream it. You'll be able to type in your questions to talk about the coronavirus vaccine. There are so many questions. And I love that everyone is trusting me and they want to hear my opinion. But if I'm on the phone all day, I can't get anything else done. So I thought that this was the best way to get out some of the major issues and concerns and just talk it out. December 13th, Sunday, 2 p.m. Eastern time. The other is advocacy. Unfortunately, one of my nurses who works at a hospital in the city, veteran nurse over two decades, was told by her supervisor, she's a black nurse, supervisor is white, that she would be eligible to get the vaccine as a 
frontline uh, employee, she said to her supervisor, I'm not sure. I feel uncomfortable. I'm not sure if I'm ready. To which her supervisor respond, responded, if you don't get the vaccine, we will not be responsible for you if you get sick. That was the response. As much as the community that's not even phase 1A yet, their phase 1B and 1C, it's not even their turn to get it prioritized yet. Here we have our prioritized folks having some hesitation. And rather than that being met with uh, empathy and listening as to why, it's more punitive. Well, if you don't get it, even though you've been working for us for the past nine months, taking care of everyone on a COVID ward, we're not gonna be responsible. We cannot let those messages be pervasive. And so from the advocacy standpoint, what I would want is if you are a long-term care facility worker, if you have a loved one in a long-term care facility, um, and if you're a healthcare personnel and you think that you should be in that 1A and you're not, and you're being excluded, I want you to reach out to me. I want you to email us, blackdoctorsconsortium.com. We have a contact on there, info at, and I want you to reach out to us and or call the office. Put it in writing, please and let us advocate for you. I am on the Philadelphia Department of Public Health CDC Vaccine Advisory Committee. Um, I was part of these prioritizations that were created for our city. And if you meet those, those criteria and it's not being offered, I want you to call me. And just to be clear, your feelings are the vac toward the vaccine seem to be positive. They're positive, but as I like to call it, there's four groups. There's the folks that are like, I'm not taking it. No way, no how. I'm not taking the vaccine. And then very strong on the other end is I want it as soon as it becomes available. The third group are, I'm probably going to get it, but I want to wait and see how other people do with it. And then the last group is I have had coronavirus. I've been exposed and I know that I have long-term antibodies to coronavirus vaccines. I need you to prove to me that the antibodies in my body are not as good as what I would generate with this vaccine. And those are the four groups. And remember, a lot of African-Americans have had coronavirus. That is a very legitimate question. And both Dr. Fauci and the director of Warp Speed have said that your antibodies do confer some level of protection and the benchmark for the vaccine was to create antibodies at the level of people who had previously been exposed to coronavirus for them to be as good, if not better. And so that's how I feel. It's where you're going to fit in those groups. And for the people who are adamantly opposed, those are really the ones that I want to talk to about why. But I believe that it's a risk benefit for everyone. And you, if you work in a COVID ward in a hospital, you have comorbid conditions, you're African-American and you can't afford to retire, for you, the risk may be worth the benefit to accept the vaccine. But if you're group 1C and you're not really in contact with, and it's not time for you to get it anyway, you will be blessed with the time to see lots of other people get it. And maybe by the time it's your turn, you may feel more comfortable. So I think it's not one size fits all. For me, it's not. Would you get the vaccine? So my plan was to get it. 
And then I, in August, had coronavirus. And when I went to have my annual checkup, my doctor checked for coronavirus antibodies, IgG, and I have antibodies at month four. So I'm in the group that I've been exposed. I have antibodies and I am going to go with the antibodies I have for now. If for some reason we get more information later that the antibodies are not as effective or I get tested and I no longer have them, then it will be time for me to say, okay, yes, I need to get a coronavirus vaccine because this is where I plan to be in the community serving folks. I'm going to have a continual exposure to the coronavirus. I'm a healthcare worker. And so I am at high risk. So yes, I would receive it. You would receive it. And so, but you're not trying to convince people. You're just trying to educate people so that they can make their own decisions. That's correct. Because it's not, we know the immediate effects, which are fever, you know, weakness, some pain in your arm, and basically feeling like you have coronavirus for up to 48 hours, right? We know the immediate. We know some of the intermediate effects, right? But what we don't know are the two years from now, the four years from now, we don't know that. And no amount of scientists meeting are going to give us that answer. And I can't reassure the public to say, don't worry about the long-term effects. Don't worry about it. I don't know. The scientists don't know. And this particular technology has never been introduced in a vaccine before. Yeah. And you're one of the trusted mem- uh, trusted you know, messengers in our region and nationally at this point. And so, I mean, people have to make their own decision. That is basically what you're saying. Know the facts, educate yourself and make your own decision. It's just interesting. This whole pandemic has been, I mean, I hate to say everybody doing what they want, but I mean, kind of, you know, you had some people who were, I'm going to wear my mask. I'm not having people at my house. I'm not traveling. And you had other people that said, it's my constitutional right not to wear a mask. So, and the government did not intervene and say, everyone must wear a mask. So I don't get how now they intervene and say, everyone must take the vaccine. We will see, but I really think the blessing in this is actually that everyone is not eligible to get it right away and that there's not enough to go around right away. I think that's actually a blessing because it's gonna give many people who are unsure the time they might need to say, all right, my man got it. You know, he's a firefighter, he's doing all right. You know, grandma got it. She was sick for a while, but she's still here. Maybe I should, you know? And I think that's gonna be a benefit, but the whole idea of convincing or coercing someone, I don't think that's the way to go. I think first you listen, you educate, and then you help them make the best decision that's right for them. Thank you so much to Dr. Ayla Stanford, founder of the Black Doctors COVID-19 Consortium. You could check her out on Sunday from 2 to 4 on Facebook Live, where she'll do a fireside chat all about the new vaccine. Next up, they're providing funding to a sector pounded by the pandemic. Hopefully this will be a bridge to better times. A partnership of foundations and the grants designed to keep Philly's arts and culture alive. But first, traffic and weather. We'll be right back. Patriot Home Care is here to help when their clients need them most. If you're a caregiver and 
feel uncertain about where you're working now? Call Patriot today. Patriot Home Care is now paying up to $600 in hazard pay to its current and newly hired direct care workers, recognizing their hard work and caring for our consumers during these uncertain times. Hazard pay will be up to $600 per direct care worker. Visit PatriotHomeCare.org. That's PatriotHomeCare.org. Or call 1-877-535-5550. Hey, Flashpoint family, if you like what you hear, why don't you stick around and take a listen to some of our past episodes or our Flashpoint extras. One example is our exclusive interview with the one and only DJ Jazzy Jeff. He contracted COVID-19. He had some dark moments, but he survived. Take a listen to his journey. Another example is our Pat's Newsmaker of the Week, Andrew Wyatt. He's spokesman for actor and comedian Bill Cosby. He explains why they're petitioning the governor to hopefully get the cause out of jail early. All of this and more. Please subscribe to the podcast and rate and review. Now back to the show. Welcome back to Flashpoint. I'm Cherry Gregg. Be sure to subscribe to the Flashpoint podcast by downloading the radio.com app, Apple Podcast app, or other platforms. All you have to do is search Flashpoint. Now, we here at KYW, we are all about community. And Philadelphia's art and culture scene is in crisis due to the pandemic and mass closures. But two foundations have joined forces to help dozens of organizations get through these tough times. Join me in welcoming our Patriot Home Care Changemaker, board chair of the William Penn Foundation, Janet Haas. Welcome to Flashpoint. Thank you so much. I'm delighted to be here. Tell us a little bit about this fund created by the William Penn Foundation to help these arts and culture organizations. It's an $8 million fund funded by William Penn and Mellon equally. We were delighted that Mellon uh, was uh, willing to match our grants. We've had a long-term relationship, but this is actually their first funding in Philadelphia, although they have a great deal of respect for our arts, arts organizations, which was what brought them here. The fund is a recovery fund for organizations. It'll be funding 37 organizations in the city and the community, all the way from world-renowned, very large organizations to small neighborhood-based cultural groups. Money will be used for general purposes, any way the organizations need to use it, rather than for specific program purposes. This is a sector that has not gotten a lot of focus, but has been deeply impacted. Uh, When did you all realize that this was needed? Honestly, right away, as soon as the pandemic um, began, arts organizations had to close their doors. Museums were not allowed to be open. And obviously no one was going to be gathering for theater or dance or other program activities. So we've known right from the beginning that this is a true crisis for the arts and culture community. Yeah. And so talk about the William Penn Foundation and how this fund and these grants tie to its mission. Um, This is a family foundation established 75 years ago, and it has continued for the entire duration to support Philadelphia region's nonprofit organizations. Arts and culture have been of very important interest to us right from the beginning and continue to be one of our three main funding areas. Our other two are focusing on education of our youngest learners, particularly those aged zero to eight. We wanna be sure that all children in Philadelphia are able to read on grade level by the end of third grade and be numeracy literate as well. Our third area is um, our work to help protect our water resources in this region. As you know, the Delaware River is the body of water that sustains us and over 15 million people. 
and is threatened as are many fresh waterways in this area. So that's our third major area of funding. All of the funding is directed to the Philadelphia region. That's beautiful. And so let's talk a little bit more about the arts and cultural sector. How important is it to save these organizations during this tough time? And, and by the way, we do miss them. Yes, indeed we do. Well, I can answer your question by asking you one. What is life without art? Yeah. Civilizations through the ages have been understood and assessed in part based on their art. And we know that art's universal. We don't rely on language to meet one another um, through art. It moves us, grabs us. It's an integral part of our nature. So when we think about Philadelphia arts institutions, we have to think about what any art does for us, right? And what they're providing us. They give us, art gives us insight into ourselves and our values, the possibilities for us, what matters. It helps us bond with and understand others. When we think about the pandemic now and the human condition, the worldwide human suffering that we're experiencing, we realize that there's art being created this very day that helps reflect our experience and helps us to understand it. There's no question that art is, it lifts us, helps us, heals us, inspires us. And our institutions in Philadelphia do that for us and with us. They're part of us. And that's why we want to support them and have through the years. That's beautiful. And it just goes to show how, you know, many different types of groups have been touched by this pandemic and have been deeply impacted. Um, and, and I'm sure that they, they have been very happy to get this lifeline uh, to help them through. Well, they've been really responsive and we're delighted about that, particularly because we know that it doesn't meet the need that's out there. We understand that completely for all the organizations and for each of the ones that's funded now or was funded um, through the spring grants, through the other fund. But I think that it, the flexibility in the funding, the timeliness of it, we know this winter is a hard time. You see what's what's going on in, in the healthcare arena so and other businesses that are very much threatened. So the flexible funding now hopefully is a lifeline to better times ahead. And we're lucky, I think, in this to see how, how well the vaccines are coming along, surprising everybody that they're this quick and seem really very promising. So hopefully this will be a bridge to better times when we can gather and all do and be with art again. Yeah, beautiful. As we wrap up, what is your hope with regard to this sector as we move forward? I hope is that it remains a very diverse uh, sector, that in fact it increases in diversity, that racial and social justice somehow become promoted in this period of time. I think we as a society have realized yet again, the little attention we've paid to some of the most important aspects of life. So I I hope that this time leads to a fostering of inclusiveness and of genuine opportunity and just work and that everyone can participate in going forward. It's the one perhaps silver lining of the pandemic that we wake up and realize it's not the same anymore. It can't be the same. So hopefully the arts sector will lead us in this way and also help to reflect these values. Wonderful. Uh, well, thank you so much to Janet Haas, uh, board chair of the William Penn Foundation. We appreciate uh, you and your colleagues in helping to keep the arts and cultural sector in Philadelphia 
afloat during this tough time. That's it for Flashpoint. Follow us on Twitter. Our handle is Flashpoint Show. And as we always wrap it up with a quote, here's one from Anonymous. It should be understood that a vaccine against coronavirus is a ticket to freedom. The show was produced by Ariane Fulcher and me, your host, Cherry Gregg. Flashpoint is sponsored by the Gift of Life donor program, Oregon Donors Save Lives. Until next week, thanks for listening.